You are listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, we're in this um, series in Psalms, and um, David has been showing God is a refuge, God is a help, God is mighty, God is a warrior, God is worthy of worship, and all these magnificent things about God. And today he's going to celebrate God as the rightful judge over his enemies. Now, throughout history, this idea of God being the sovereign judge has been wildly celebrated. It has been talked about almost nonchalantly. However, today, uh, I think we talk about it with a little more hesitation. And let me try and, if you're wondering, like, why are you so hesitant, just get up there and say it. Let me, let me try and say why is because there are some people that this idea of God being judged a judge has um, been manifested maybe through a church, through a pastor, through people at the church, through a committee, um, through hopefully not this church, but some other church, that um, they've been really wounded by that. Like it almost seems like the church or the pastor, whoever it is, is almost like giddy in pointing out their sin and how angry God is at their sin. And in case you're thinking, is that really that big a deal? Maybe that's a little slip up. Like think about um, church is a place, especially if you're sharing something deep within, you know, something that's maybe not that pretty about you. And you're coming in and you're, you're, you're being vulnerable, which we all need a place where we can be vulnerable and be our real true selves. And if you come to a place vulnerable, it's like the wound is opened a little more. And so if somebody does something that's insensitive, it cuts even deeper. And so some people have some history of they've gone to a church, they've uh, or met with a Christian or a pastor or something like that, and they, they're going and they're, they're vulnerably sharing something. And instead of graciousness, they're met with this thing that just seems like it is judgment, and I would probably use the term condemnation. And so what can happen is as if that's not a big enough deal, then that person can have a wound that's so deep and can think... It's not just this person or this committee or whoever it is did something that they shouldn't have done. They can actually start going, is that how Christians are? Is that how the church is? And they are to represent God on earth, so is that how God is? Like it can really bleed over into the whole way that they see God. Instead of thinking this one person didn't represent God well, it's easy to just go, well, churches just don't represent God well. And so as a result, where do they go? Well, the world just accepts me. So now I find a place where I don't think I'll get wounded. I'll just go out there and they'll just, you know, accept me and I'll kind of compromise and maybe become like them. But you can see the tension. Like it is not a small thing to just get up here and like pound and talk about the wrath of God and the judgment of God. Some, for some people, there's some really, there's some wounds there. There's, there's history there. There's, there's baggage there. And so what has the church, and I mean like the church, like global church, what have we done, or I say global, American and Western really, what have we done in response is, um, if you know, if you know a, um, what, a seeker-driven church, if you've ever heard that, it's, it's a church that says, what I think about are the people who never ever come to church, and when they come here, I want to do everything to try and win them. And usually a mark of these churches is all the stuff that's happening out in the culture that's dividing people Let's ignore all that and let's not talk about difficult things here because we don't have a relationship and we want to honor them. And so let's just take out a few doctrine and put them over here, the doctrine that they are not really going to like either. And let's just sort of hone in on this. 
And so instead of saying we're just going to kind of wield this thing about the judgment of God as some kind of club that we're going to use, instead it becomes we're just not going to talk about it, which is not a good strategy at all, by the way. It's not a good strategy to say here's all the sensitive things going on in the world, and so um, instead of equipping Christians to go live in it, we're just going to talk about everything else and let them figure out the stuff that's actually going on in the world. We'll just live in our own fantasy world in here like none of that's happening and then just kind of send you out to the wolves and feel good about ourselves because we talked about something we all agree on anyway. That's a lot of where the church in America has started to move. And so the response of, I think it's a response from, I want to be sensitive, is to say, let's not even bring up this topic. And so the idea of God being just and God being judge, let me just, give me a minute to try and show you. I'll, I'll summarize it and then I'll show you in the text. Why that option is just as bad as the other one. Amen. It is. Let me just give you, I'll give you three quick, quick reasons and I'll show them to you from the text. Number one, if God is not judge, in other words, if the church doesn't uphold its end to say that we do have a good, gracious, sovereign God who is judge over all, if we don't know that deep down within us and we see the evil in the world, then I feel like I have to be judge. If I don't understand, so ironically, not understanding that God is the rightful judge makes me more judgy in my day-to-day -day life. That's bad. Second, <clears throat> if God is not judge, if we don't understand this facet of God and who he is, and we look out in the world and we see all the injustice in the world, we see the oppression in the world, we see all the bad things in the world, and if we go, they are unaccountable and will never answer for this and there's no good judge that is seeing what's happening. That is a life of futility and despair. Amen. And lastly, if God is not judge and if I am not really even accountable to him because I don't think he's judge, if we lose this doctrine, then I am saved from nothing. Salvation is pointless if I don't ultimately answer to him. And I want to show you what David does because I think it's brilliant how he does it that it's not just those three negatives. It's if God is judge, then all of a sudden I don't have to be. If God is judge, then I can know that evil in the world, I don't have to live in despair. I know that evil doesn't just go on unchecked. And also, my salvation brings me the greatest of joy because I know what I deserve and I know what God has done on my behalf through his son, Jesus Christ. So here's my advice. Instead of just all the time ignoring things that are sensitive, I'm talking about private conversations, things like that, just know what could be hot buttons and just talk about sensitive topics sensitively. We used to be able to do that, didn't we? Times have changed. Well, I want to talk about this with, with kind of both groups in mind, some that may be a little raw from this, and, and I, I hope you hear me say, I get it, and I'm just grateful that you're here, and then, um, and then we've got this other side of just, well, maybe we should just ignore it, and I want to just show you there is a better way, and there's glorious truth when we understand with nuance what this means, this idea of God being judged. I don't want to deprive God's people of this great doctrine. I rob you of joy, and I invite despair in your life when I do otherwise. All right, I think that's enough. All right, verse one, here's what it says. David um, is writing this, and he says, hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Now, 
Enemies could be a couple things. It's probably military enemies as well. But remember, this is, this is King David leading the Lord's army. So an attack against Israel was an attack against Yahweh. It was an attack against God. And so if this is an attack against God, this is more than just you know, the people that don't like David, even though that's part of it. It's more than just like military. Like He, he is seeing the bigger um, spiritual battle that's going on here as well. And so he's talking about dread, and he uses the term enemies, and what does he do? He says, hear my voice, O God. Where does he take this? He takes it to God. This is a good start to the entire thing, actually. If, if, if God is judged, then all of a sudden that takes it off of my man. I don't have to take up the mantle of judge, jury, and executioner as I'm walking around all day. He first, the first thing he does is he says, hear my voice, O God which is good. We need this sense of truth that we can come back to. David just says, remind me of your righteousness, oh God. We'll see some of that, and he said that in other Psalms as well. And let's just say, this is a better way of doing it because one, I will never be able to give out all the rightful justice on my own. There's too many people out there that need, you know, there's too much evil, there's too much bad. I'm never gonna get to it all. And perhaps even more important than that, I am no way am I going to be able to do it well at all. I don't have the full picture of even what's going on in order to be the one that's qualified to dole out justice. I have to trust that there is a good God who can do that. I, um, we're studying uh, in the Bible studies during the week. We have a men's and a women's. We're studying the book of Revelation, and there's seven sections in the book, and the first three are just a description of just the earth, really the church, Christians, just being despised by the world and just seeing all the problems, especially in, first century, in the first century, that they're going through and just getting pummeled from oppressive rulers to um, people with uh, uh, like false religion that's being imposed all around and drawing people away from, I think it's this week, we're going to talk about Babylon, this like all the lusts and desires of our hearts that the world just pulls us from the goodness of God, all these different things happening. And then in the middle of the book, which is where we are now, 12 through 14, you see the answer to why in the world is all this happening? And you see it in the middle of the book, and the answer is because there is an enemy, Satan, and he hates Christ. And he is trying to win the world to his side, and as he does so, who would his enemies be? He would want to encourage them to become enemies of Christians in the world. And then the last three sections of the book are, um, it's called an apocalypse, which literally means no covers or pulling back of the covers, to reveal, give a revelation, reveal of what's really happening. And then the last three sections of the book are all, here is the supernatural thing that is happening behind all the things that you are seeing on earth. You see the enemy at work. You see, uh, you see uh, this, this personification of all the like, worldly pleasures of Babylon. You see, um, you see the, the, there's beasts representing the evil, oppressive governments, and you're seeing these false religions and all the ways that the enemy likes to work. And the reality is, it is so incomprehensible for my tiny brain that if I put myself in the place of judge, I can't see all of this like God does, and I will do it poorly. And you will do it poorly. 
And so we should be able to rest in the fact that there is a good, sovereign God who can take care of it. Not to mention, who am I as far as being qualified to dole out judgment on other people when I deserve it myself, if not for Christ? I can't see people's secret lives even. I mean, I get, I get the privilege of having some deep conversations, and I can usually tell um, there's something like there's something bigger going on here and I can usually help work down to even the root issue but I'm also wrong all the time and so to just look at someone here like if I'm talking to say do marriage counseling or something and I and say just the husband meets with me first and he's sharing I am well aware that I am only hearing half the story at best and it is colored through his lenses now speaking it to me and so I can go that's nice Let's hear from her now. And then if I hear from her, I know I'm hearing her half of the, especially if they're not together, if I'm doing it separate, then I'm hearing half the story, half the picture through her lenses. And so I'm going, I'm not getting the biggest picture. We need to get together and talk it through. And even then, there's more things that get uncovered, uncovered, uncovered because there's things that we can't see. And David says, God, you see all and you know all. You are the good, righteous judge. And so he goes to him and says, preserve my life from dread of my enemies. So one practical way to think about this is I think about when, when people do something in our lives that wound, if I have a desire to serve as judge back, I want to wound back. When somebody wounds us, oftentimes what they're doing is they're pulling from some inadequacy in their own life, and they need to get their cup filled, and so they need to take from other people. So in these moments, you know, some of the things that I've, that I've done that have been, uh, I think, successful um, is if I can stand for truth and for that person... If I can stand for truth, don't stop standing for truth. If I can stand for truth, but also be for whoever that person is, that's a game changer for me. Because what do we think in the world? I'm going to stand for truth, which means I'm against him or I'm against her. Instead of saying, I'm going to stand for truth, but I also, I want, I want good for you. That changes the interaction, doesn't it? I don't need to wound back if they say something. I don't need to, if they've got their bullet point, I don't need to fire back my bullet points to win an argument. I can stand for truth, but I'm also for that person. I don't remember who told me this the first time, but um, Sun Tzu in his book, The Art of War, had a phrase that just stuck with me, and someone was quoting it sometime, and he said, to build your enemies a golden bridge of retreat. Build your enemies a golden bridge of retreat. And the idea is, Make it easy for egos to not get in the way. Make it easy for them to back down. Make it easy, as easy as you can, for them to actually maybe change their position on something. Instead of they bow up and you bow up right back. And then all it is is everybody just bowing up and getting entrenched in their own ways. So when I, when I meet with people, for example, I, I have this in mind. And sometimes people are very, very passionate about something. And they're very wrong as well. They're very passionate and very wrong, and rather than just give my counterpoint, what I've tried to do is, is think, I am for this person, I'm going to stand for truth, I want to be for them, how can I actually help affect change in their life and maybe change their mind? 
And one of the best ways to do it, and I'm telling you, I've said this a hundred times, most people know sentence number one that they feel strongly about and have no idea what sentence number two is. And if I can just engage in dialogue, instead of me trying to be victorious over them in some kind of argument, if I can just dialogue with them and ask questions and get them to explore and really think about the intricacies of it, and in the midst of it, if I can be the kind of person that they might be looking at me, and even though the world says I should hate you because you think differently, if I can be the person with the smile on my face and my arms wide open, that somewhere deep in their minds they might be going... I'd kind of like to be on your team. You're nice. That's the kind of person that I want to be. That's the kind of person that we're called to be. Instead of just bowing up and fighting and coming across, to just go, ultimately, this is in the hands of God, and I can't even begin to tell you what a burden is lifted. I'm going to stand for what is true, but I'm also going to stand for you. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know the wounds you're bringing to this conversation. I don't know baggage in your life. I don't know where this is coming from. And, you know, you're in chapter 15 of your life, and I've known you since about chapter 13, so maybe I need to hear some more back here, and let's dialogue, and let's talk, and let's process. This is difficult to do sometimes, because obviously there's some people that seem to be very, very nice, but there are also people, and let's be clear, that um, relish doing evil in the world. They relish being an enemy of God, even though they don't realize that's what they're doing. And David has some of those in this moment. They're clandestine in what they do. Verse two, it says, hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throngs of evildoers. They're slanderous as well. It says, who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly, and without fear. This is the idea of slander. This is the idea of gossip, which is usually one of the first weapons that is taken up by the enemy. Shakespeare says, slander's edge is sharper than a sword. That's what's happening here. You ever had anybody um, say something about you, start a rumor about you? Maybe part of it is true, but by the time it gets back to you, you're going, that's fantasy now. You ever had anybody gossip about you? Um, say something mean about you, maybe even if you're standing right there and they sort of take a shot at you in front of other people that are somehow defaming your character. I, I know this now, but I remember my mom telling me this when I was a kid. And now I tell it to my kids. And I think, I wonder if they're rolling their eyes at me as hard as I was rolling my eyes at her mom, because my mom, because she just didn't understand. But listen, if somebody needs to take you down a peg with their words, either to your face or behind your back, the issue is probably not with you, it's probably with them. Slander is a weapon of the weak. They have something in their lives that is not filled, and they can look at you and think, you are filled, and so I need some of what you have, and I'm going to take you down a notch. So especially young people, but this is for everybody, but especially young people, let me tell you what a godly Christian response is when enemies slander you to your face or behind your back. It's going to be hard, but I'll tell you. Pray for them. God, give me your eyes to see what's going on in their life. They're taking it out on me. Boy, that stings. But God, help them and heal me. 
Almost always when those things happen, there's some inadequacy in someone else's life and they're trying to find somebody that is filled or seems to be filled to take from them. Enemies. They're clandestine. They're slanderous. He also says they're determined. They hold fast to their evil purpose. uh, They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking who can see them. I'll show you what they mean by that in a minute. And then the diligence behind this too. They search out injustice, saying we have accomplished a diligent search for the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. They like bringing down the mighty, laying traps for others, trying to, if, hey, if you lose money, if you lose peace, if you lose your reputation, if you lose your influence, if you lose sleep, I don't really care about that. But, but notice what's important about this text in verse Five, they hold fast to their evil purposes. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking who can see them. So what what he just said is they are going to set these traps, these snares. They are going to do evil. And in their heart, how do they justify this? They go, well, who can see them? In other words, there is no God. There is no judge. And this is a picture of saying, I live a life that is unaccountable to anybody. That's what he just said. They are living a life as though they are unaccountable to anybody. God didn't see. Maybe there is no God. That's what they're doing. Remember the three reasons I gave you a minute ago? Or I said there were the, the, the second reason I think is right here, which is if this is true, if they're right and they do what they want and go, who can see? There is no God. There is no one watching. You talk about utter despair of evil going on unchecked. There are so many opportunities for this to happen in the world today. Um, I can't be in every single conversation that my kids are in, but I kind of want to be. I want to just, like, like, you talk about helicopter parent, like, I just want to have one of those, like, little leashes or something, you know, like, I want to see, like, like, I love, love, love teachers, I got a soft spot for teachers, we do stuff for the Ralston teachers, my sister's a teacher, but if you've been watching what's happening in the school system, it's even tougher now for some of those teachers that are trying to be Christians in the public square. I can't be there when a teacher is having a private conversation with a third grader or whatever it is. But I can trust that God is. That's what he just said. Do you ever feel like there are people in power in our country or other countries? And you go, I can't really affect that change and they don't seem, they seem to be kind of getting off scot-free. God sees David's saying, they're doing stuff and going, no one's there to judge me. I'm getting off clean and easy. And David says, that's what you're doing. You're saying, who can see? God does. The other way leads us to despair. This other way gives us the greatest of joy and hope, knowing that there is a God who sees. And like the example with kids, that he loves those kids even more than their parents do. That's what he's saying. Verse 7 says, God shoots his arrows at them and they are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their head. When he says this, one of the things to note about the justice and judgment of God is we, we always think about that like, well, someday, you know, hell awaits. Um, let me say very clearly, God also throughout history will dole out judgment in different ways to turn people to him. 
that it is not like you're not accountable, not accountable, not accountable, not accountable, and then someday when you die, you're accountable. David is calling right now. He is saying, God, right now, would you pour out judgment? Would you do a work on those who do evil? And the effect of this is the glory of God. Look at this. Then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. And here's, here's my favorite part. This is the third reason why it's good for us to understand the justice of God. The third reason is, verse 10, let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult. Well, he's only talked about two categories of people. One are these horrific enemies of God, and that's not me. Therefore, I'm righteous. That's not what it's saying. When you think of the righteousness of God, let me tell you what it means to say you are biblically righteous. It's not, check me out and look at how much better I am than those other people. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it like this. By the way, this is a fantastic passage to memorize. Teach it to kids. Memorize this thing. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. For our sake... God made Jesus, he made him, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, let me explain it. It says, for our sake, Paul's writing this, for our sake, for the sake of the Christian or for the sake of mankind, God made Jesus to be sin, meaning to take on the sin of the world. And it says, but he knew no sin, that he was perfect, that he was the perfect one, that he was the perfect sacrifice. He made, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus took on the sin of the world. Why? It's for our sake, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. My righteousness is not because I'm such a great guy. It is because I am in Jesus Christ, and when God sees me, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He sees I am a forgiven saint in his eyes, not because I'm so great, not because I stand up here, not because I go to church, not because I give a bunch of money, not because I'm kind of nicer than your average Joe or anything like that, but simply because I realize the depth and depravity of my own sin, and I say, save me, and Christ has saved me, and therefore, I have the righteousness of God. That's what this means. If God is not the rightful judge, we've been saved by nothing, or saved for nothing. We've saved from nothing. Like our salvation, is, there's no joy in it. Like salvation is about being saved, and if God is not the rightful judge and we're not accountable to him in our sin, then all of a sudden, what's the big deal about our salvation? But if God is the rightful judge and we answer to him, And he loves us so much that he would send his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf. That is the reason for utmost joy in our lives. And so when I see that churches are going, we shouldn't talk about this, shouldn't talk about this, I go, man, you are pushing your people towards despair. You're, You're pushing them to say, well, you better go be judges of the world. You're robbing them of the joy they can have of knowing that their sin is forgiven. And I do not want to rob you of that. 
John Piper has a, um, an Advent devotional. It's a good Advent devotional. Um, it's got my favorite title, perhaps, of any book I've ever read. It's a very John Piper title if you read his stuff. And it's, um, it's a, just a picture of, like, I guess, Bethlehem and a light breaking in on the cover. And the title is um, the, Dawning, the, the Dawn of Indestructible Joy. The Dawn of Indestructible Joy. That coming of Jesus Christ and what he did to bring a joy that no one can take from us. I don't know if you know what a catechism is. Um, it's, a, um, uh, it's, a, it's kind of a question and answer format that people use to learn different truths. They use it with kids um, quite a bit. I think it's great for adults as well, but they would teach kids a lot of times. They would use this catechesis or catechism, and there's one in particular called the Heidelberg Catechism from the 1500s. And it's a question, and then it gives the answer, and so you would memorize both in your learning doctrine. It's a, it's a great way to learn. The first question is this. First question in this catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, kids will usually stop there, but there's more to it. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's a lot, I know. That's why the kids stop after like a sentence. And Jim stops after about a sentence as well. So question two, right after that, says this. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? So they're wanting to teach children especially, but people in the church, what do, oh, what, what do I have to know in order to live and die with that comfort, with that great hope? <clears throat> this is a shorter answer. Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. We have to understand that we answer to God. If, if God is not the rightful judge, then all of a sudden, how great are my sin and misery? Well, who, who's to say what's sinful? Maybe I'm not that bad of a, of a person to begin with. I don't really need to be saved. And then so when it gets to how I'm set free from such sin and misery, I'm going, well, maybe, maybe I don't really need to be set free from any of it. And all of a sudden, we've taken the cross of Christ and basically say God is a rude father that had his son brutally murdered for no reason. Or we can say this is the only hope, the only thing we have is the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died and that he rose and that he paid for sin, and that should bring us the greatness of joy. Amen. It's option two, by the way. That it should bring us the greatest of joy, what God has done for us in Christ. You know, I, I kind of think of it, I don't have a great analogy for this, but I'm picturing like if someone's walking out of the courtroom and, you know, the judge is about to, or walking, walking in, excuse me, walking in and the judge is about to hand out a verdict and I'm just standing outside and I go, I go, what's going on? You know, you look sad and in the handcuffies, you know, like, like what's going on? And as he's walking in and he goes, well... I'm dead guilty, the judge knows it, they're not gonna withdraw the lawsuit, and, um, and that's that, and so I'm pretty sure I know what's about to happen. And then what if I were to say, I'm sorry man, you know what? 
I forgive you. What's he thinking? Who are you? You're some guy just standing out here in front of the courthouse. Who are you to forgive me? You have no power to forgive. I'm not accountable to you. You're not the one bringing charges. But what if I were to say, actually, I'm the president of the company that you're defrauding, and that's why you're having to go in there. Or it's my family that you harmed, and we're actually the ones bringing the suit. And so you need to know, I forgive you, and there will not be a penalty and a consequence for what you have done. Changes everything, because now all of a sudden, I actually have the ability to absolve them of their guilt and their sin. We answer to God, and he is the one He is the one to whom we are accountable. And he's also the one who sent his son, Jesus Christ, so that we can live in the joy of the grace that he offers. When we, why is it better to talk about this? When we don't talk about it, we take on the burden of saying, I need to be judged, jury, and executioner in the world. Christian can say, God's got this. Evil in the world would go unchecked. Nope. I don't have to live in that despair. I can live knowing that there is a God who watches even the most private conversations. He sees them. And it's not that we don't have joy in our salvation. We have the ultimate joy because of what God has done through Jesus Christ, that he is the one to whom we are accountable, and he is the one that says, your debt has been paid by my son. That brings us joy. You know, it is... um, It's probably good and appropriate um, just talking about all this and trying to remember our place in this about how can we stand for truth and stand for the person is you can just remember that we we are much like them apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's what we want them to know desperately. 